Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Why did you call me, darling? I don't know you. What's going on here? Am I supposed to know you? Allie. No. No! No! Allie, sweetheart. Hey, Allie, I love you. Stay with me. Don't No! Me. Who are you? I'm Noah. I'm Noah and you're Allie. What do you want? What are you doing here? Come on, baby. Don't come near me. Don't you come Allie. near me. Allie. Allie. Get help! Help! Help me! Calm down, Allie. Calm down. No! That's a scene from the 2004 film The Notebook, based on Nicholas Sparks' best-selling novel of the same name. Noah is the loving husband of Allie, devastated that because of Alzheimer's disease, she no longer knows who he is. A loved one's memory loss is one of the most painful experiences for family caregivers who care for the 5.7 million Americans suffering from Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Logan Wells was about 12 when his grandmother was diagnosed. The Lexington-based teen joined several family members and friends in her round-the-clock care. But Logan quickly realized that their homemade system was too confusing, so he turned to technology, taught himself how to code, and developed CareZare, an app some caregivers now rely on. Later in the show, Boston's official poetry ambassadors are out to make poetry fans of all of us. April is National Poetry Month, so we're celebrating with two young women who have mastered one of art's oldest forms of expression. But first, Logan Wells, 20-year-old Lexington, Massachusetts native and creator of the CareZare app. Hello, Logan. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Liz O'Donnell, author of Working Daughter and a local caregiving advocate. Hello, Liz. Hi there. And Chad Burns, retention manager for Benefit Resource Incorporated and longtime CareZare app user. Welcome, Chad. Thank you for having me, Kelly. So I'm so thrilled to have all of you because any story about Alzheimer's is personal to me. I'll begin this way. My mother died from Alzheimer's, so many of us in the family and other close friends were involved in caregiving. So this is, you know, right at where I live, and I know it's right where those 5.7 million other people are involved as well. Logan, let's start with how you came to create this app. You're about 11 or 12 when your grandmother is diagnosed, and at 14, you start teaching yourself how to code, for goodness sakes, because you realize there was a better way to take care of her around the clock. Tell me about it. Yeah, uh, geez, it was a really stressful first couple of years when my grandmother was first diagnosed with dementia. It was first confusing, kind of understanding how my grandmother suddenly became the center of attention in the family. She quickly became the focus at our dinner tables and discussions, and it was really frustrating kind of sitting on the sidelines while seeing my family and my mostly my mom having to struggle with coordinating the care for my grandmother. After a couple of years, I and kind of watching the caregiving process from the sidelines while also sometimes participating in it. That's where I came up with the idea of how there must be a more efficient way to manage care and coordinate care when uh, helping my grandmother. So what did you observe as an 11 or 12-year-old when you, you know, she first started slipping into dementia that was just so startlingly different from the grandmother you'd known? It really does start with the 
small differences beforehand. Like for my sister and my brother and I, it was common every week on Thursdays. After a half day, we would go to my grandmother's house. And then after lunch, we would have a big bowl of ice cream. And my brother and I were kind of germaphobes. So then when my grandmother started eating our ice cream with a spoon or whatever, we'd be like, Grandma, what are you doing? Or like, what's up? So that's where like in my everyday kind of small things, everyday life. But um, then it quickly kind of turned more serious in terms of my grandmother kind of forgetting really common day things, forgetting friends. And it, yeah, it kind of only spiraled from there. Well, Logan, not everybody experiences this and thinks, hmm, let me figure out an app <laughs> to to make this work for everybody. Yeah, yeah. What really drove you to do this? I mean, you didn't even have the skills to do it. You had to teach yourself that first. It was just the constant presence of the struggles, both for my grandmother, because it was really hard on her, but also on my family. I would kind of sometimes help in the caregiving process, and I would constantly see kind of where my mom would kind of the struggle points or the pressure points involved in the caregiving process. Uh, For example, having to communicate with all the family members who wanted to stay up to date on my grandmother, all the caregivers we wanted to get constant updates from, and seeing the process of like whether or not she took her meds, whether or not, you know, she was wandering recently or any of that information. Most of it was paper-based. So kind of me being the an avid user of technology, like most teenagers or young people, figured maybe we could incorporate it and make it easier. And in fact, did make it easier. When you first tried it out, you know, before it got to the point where you could share it with many other people, what did you notice right away that that made it easier? Just having a clear frame of mind, knowing that all the information about my grandma was accessible in one place, it made it so my mom didn't have to worry about all of these sheets of paper, whether it be the calendar, you know, med tracking sheet, when a caregiver would clock in and clock out, and all making sure everyone was on the same page. Just having that all in one place kind of calmed the seas a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was just really great to see that impact on my family. That's Logan Wells. He's a 20-year-old Lexington, Massachusetts native and creator of the CareZare app. Now, over to you, Chad Burns. I mean, you are the beneficiary of Logan's work on this because your mom fell ill. You're wanting to care for her in the best way possible. And you also are having to navigate a lot of different people, as Logan's family did, in caring for her. What about this app appealed to you and has worked so well? Well, in stark comparison to the first time I dealt with this, my mother and I cared for a great-grandfather for years as a latchkey kid then, and two-person team, communication was always an issue, especially availability at that time of the technology. This time around, it's allowed for a flattening of the volatility that comes along with going in and out of someone's life and day-to-day activities with my mother and having to burden her with the responsibility of questions like, what did the doctor say? Because it's really the only option available. With this technology, it creates a level above and outside of the person being cared for that reduces their stress, uh, having to deal with the logistics of the care itself. As a reminder, I'm a fairly hyperactive person. And on some days, my mother would be devastated by the amount of stimuli I would bring her. And just that reminder some days that she's having a bad day from whoever was there first would allow me to temper my attitude in a way that helps her not have those spikes in activity or situations where she's not 
able to handle them. The logistical part that Logan discussed as far as knowing what the doctor said, having input on meds, understanding schedules, and even just reducing the physical phone calls and communications and meetings that need to be made are all a, a big part of reducing that stress level on the caregiver itself, which allows you to add a lot more quality to the care you give to your loved one. So, Chad, a lot of people may not know, because you mentioned one of the symptoms, which is that stimuli, that extra stimuli that's really people with dementia are quite sensitive to. And there are other situations that you need to know about if you're caregiving. It makes a difference. Explain to people, like, what's it like to be a caregiver of a person who has dementia? The people with dementia, as much as they know they have dementia, they hold on as hard as they can to the person they are still and maybe are afraid of the person that they may become, even though they're still that person. But in my case, it was switches to times getting her out of the house. She loves to go grocery shopping, as an example. Absolutely impossible at any time after 11 a.m. We have to be there at 8 because the amount of people, the amount of noise, the amount of choices, the amount of small problems to navigate, which really aren't small problems to them. They get in there in their heads and they, they kind of look at those problems. And the more attention and energy they direct in that direction, the less energy and attention they have to hold on to memories, even for a short time. And that creates this cycle of frustration in them and further confusion and more negative outcomes for the activities that we engage in, which means lower quality of life for that person and less enjoyment for the time they have. So it's navigating their special times. Obviously, nighttime can be a difficult time. Obviously, the mornings are the best. Sleep schedules are a big part of it. It really helps keep those batteries charged, which are very low. I I refer to them as batteries, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really their cognitive ability, which diminishes throughout the day. Uh, So anything like that. This may be the first year where my mother doesn't come home for holidays. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's been in the home, and we've gone back and forth over and over again with these holidays. And it's always been a big logistical lift. As much as she loves them, it seems to be that the value is starting to diminish because of the difficulty she has with it. So this may be the first year that in order to help her maintain the memory and the enjoyment of the day itself, we have to sacrifice getting out of the home to do so. It's really about creating as many good memories as you can to keep the days as happy as they can be. This is an intense situation for anybody caregiving, no matter what the illness may be. But dementia has a a special load. And you mentioned that Cares There just really helped in that, and that made a huge difference for you. It does. It changes this retroactive approach to everything. Once something happens, you have to communicate with everyone or find a time to communicate or find a way to communicate or write it on a board. In this collaborative environment that he's created, uh, what it does is kind of real time keeps you up to date on everything that's going on. Much as you would a project in an office environment, your team can understand, well, this happened at this doctor today. And because of this, this medicine is going to change and this is going to happen. And The best part is that it's already been taken care of. Did someone talk to the doctor? Did someone talk to the social worker? Did this get taken care of? And instead of the same questions being asked over and over or being completely ignored in everyone's attempt to do the right thing, this puts everyone in a place where they can focus their energies in the exact same direction at the exact same time. In the past, it's just been you're standing at the gate trying to hand out flyers of information or field phone calls or, hey, what happened with mom today or what happened with this person today? And it kind of eliminates that and really gets everyone on the same page without having to be in the same room or on the same phone line or in the same appointment. Mm -hmm. And that kind of value is indispensable. That's my guest, Chad Burns. He's a retention manager for Benefit Resource Incorporated and a longtime CareZare app user. 
Over to you, Liz O'Donnell. You're the founder of Working Daughter, but also the author of a book based on that name, Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living, that was published last year. You're not only a person who's become quite expert in on the topic of caregiving, but the reason you've become expert is because you've caregived, and, and certainly for both of your parents, one of whom had dementia. Talk about just the pressures of being a part of a system of trying to care for a loved one first before we get to the specifics of of the app. Yeah, immense pressure because the structure, the systems don't really exist. And so a family caregiver is left alone, really, to figure out where should my parent live? How best should I care for my parent? What is dementia? Oftentimes we get a diagnosis, oh, your parent has Alzheimer's or dementia, and then you're on your own. Um, A lot of primary care physicians don't really understand the disease. So what's happening? How do I handle this? What medications? And then, of course, you know, the average family caregiver is a woman in her late 40s, and she's got a parent who may be ill or aging, and she often has a child under the age of 18. So the term sandwich generation is very apt, um, especially if you're thinking about a panini or something where that sandwich is pressed. Personally, how was it? Because as you've come to the expertise, you sort of had to learn along the way very painfully and in the middle of the situation. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely baptism by fire, trial by error, all of those things. So my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses on the same day. My dad was in then Quincy Hospital having a psych evaluation because he had been forgetful uh, and confused. And so I met with his team one day and they said it's Alzheimer's and he can never live alone. Meanwhile, my mother had been having some stomach pains and was over at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And before I could even leave the parking lot at Quincy Hospital, after hearing you know, this devastating diagnosis about my dad, the hospitalist at the Brigham called and he said, your mother has ovarian cancer. Can you come over here tonight so we can tell her together? So I went from feeling like I was this very busy working mother with a stressful job in public relations to really, really busy and overwhelmed. And now where is my dad going to live? Where is my mother going to live? What do these diagnoses mean? How much money do they have? What can they afford? What can I afford? How am I going to keep my job? And it was just a period of about six months of absolute stress. What difference could something like the Cares Air app have made for you had, you know, just something to assist you in trying to pull all these pieces together? I've tried the app and I think two things that I I wish Logan was older or I was younger. I don't know which, but um, the (laughs) the way I managed things was I had an Excel spreadsheet and at its height, um, about probably about a month or six weeks after my parents' diagnoses, there were 196 items on it. So I would wake up in the morning and I would open up that Excel spreadsheet and I would highlight what could I accomplish that day, what needed to be done. And it was everything from you know insurance companies to meeting with elder law attorneys to little things me and i moved my dad into memory care i moved my mom from one assisted living to another so calling verizon to hook up the phones and you know so all kinds of uh tasks that i had to do from big intense that had to be me you know talk to a doctor or small and maybe i could have delegated i have two sisters who definitely were involved, but I tend to be a taskmaster. I tend to be a steamroller. I tend to be very good at logistics. So I didn't ever really feel like I could stop 
and bring them along. Mm. My dad is also from a very big family, so I had lots of aunts, uncles, and cousins calling for updates. I think if I had an app like CaresAir, exactly what Chad was talking about, I could have notified people, especially because I was dividing and conquering around our two parents, you know, go see dad today, It'd be a great day to see him, or cancel that visit to my father today, he's not up for it, that type of thing. And also for my sisters to be able to more easily delegate because with my Excel spreadsheet, and I don't think we were really using a lot of Google Drive back then, I would have to stop, make the phone call, you know, fill them in and bring them along. And the second thing is as a working caregiver, as a woman at the time I was in my mid forties, surrounded by millennials in an open office space, I was that older woman that was always taking personal calls and you didn't see the years I had put in building trust and credibility at the workplace. You just saw this woman who seemed like a flake who took a lot of calls with the Mm. app. I would have been able to do that in a much more discreet way. That's my guest, Liz O'Donnell. She's the author of Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Logan Wells, creator of CareZair app, Liz O'Donnell, local caregiving advocate, you just heard her, and Chad Burns, longtime CareZair app user. We're talking about the app that Logan created to help in caring for his grandmother. Now, Logan, a lot of people are going to hear technology app and say, well, that's great for some people, but, you know, that is just not my thing. I can't at this point begin to try to figure out how to do that. One of the things that you stressed in creating this, and remember, I want to remind people that you taught yourself so that you then created this, was to keep this very simple across all folks. So people who had a lot of tech experience obviously could use it, but most importantly, people who were afraid of tech or had none could use it and would be quite simple for them. Talk about how you tested this with so many different groups of folks just to get it to the essence of what people could really use. We learned extremely quickly that caregivers, they don't have the time to pick up a complicated app or technology and learn how to use it. And in the in our really testing phases with my grandmother, we had a lot of the older caregivers involved. It wasn't just, uh, you know, my mom or, you know, younger caregivers involved, but we had some caregivers in their 70s, even um, kind of acting as campa- companions for my grandmother and weren't up to date on technology, um, you know, really for the past 10 years or whatnot in their specific case. So it was a challenge initially making a service or making an app that they could easily pick up and just use immediately. We tested a lot initially with caregivers who might be more weary with technology or about technology, but then afterwards... Or afraid, afraid of it. Yeah, afraid, afraid. Yeah, So I completely understand, you know, knowing how busy caregivers are, how, you know, I don't want another factor in my life to complicate things even more. So, and then afterwards, after really testing it with my grandmother's caregivers and what we call our care team. That's when I reached out to some more assisted living facilities, some care agencies to get feedback from their caregivers. And um, I met with a couple of assisted living facilities. Really was more eye-opening in terms of the main focus of the app. Of course, it's important to centralize all this information and put all the, you know, whether it be tracking meds or whatnot in one place, but it was also just making that as easy as possible. At the end of the day, that that was what most of the programming ended up being, kind of just making it easier and easier. So if you're weary or if you're afraid, 
we worked really hard on making it as easy as possible. I also want to give you credit. You learned from YouTube how to code and, and make this app, by the way. And I, yeah. I, I I get my hats off to you. And we should say that, it, you know, you didn't look at one or two tutorials and then, you know, two months later you did it. This took a couple of years to learn and to get the hang of it and then put in what you needed and all of that. So that's what's important. So, Chad, now what I've heard from you is that you've seen some competitors to Logan's app, but it's missing a component that you think is very important. Uh, what I've seen are other collaborative softwares that don't focus on, rightly or wrongly, I, I lump this kind of care of giving with elder care. The ease of use, which this platform has, as a matter of fact, there's a 79-year-old friend of my mother's that found it very easy to use, easier than Facebook. In my case, I had a slightly younger demographic working on it because my mother is so young. She's been in the home for two years mm. and she's only 62. So I, I had a little bit of an advantage there, but... Having parents in their 60s and 70s and, and aunts and uncles and ancillary helpers or friends in that area that are able to quickly access and adopt the technology, which is the biggest part, you can roll this out to as many people in your network or your caregiving team as you want. If they don't have the ability nor the willingness to use it, you're never going to get everything you need out of it. And it's really going to kind of drag down the effectiveness of the platform as a whole. So the ease of which you were able to plug and play and get great results from it uh, really was the difference maker for me. It's not necessary to have these incredible bells and whistles and different different kind of components that adopt the newest technology. What it does is uses available technology in a very effective, comprehensive way. And that in and of itself, I think, is the major advantage over any other kind of caregiving app or software that the market has. And also, Logan created this out of the love for his grandmother. So the focus of this was really about yes. the care. And, and, it, come, and it comes through. Part, it's it's you know? not as a, a money-making enterprise. It's a, it's a gift that he gave to his family that he's sharing with us that has turned into being something very useful. Because I forgot to mention the big thing, and so did you, Logan. It's free. It's available <laughs> for everybody to use. That was, you know, the driver for you was your grandmother, but you wanted everybody to have access to this who might be in a similar situation. Yeah, well, we don't want to be like another cost in the caregiving because we know how the expenses for caregivers, they already lose so much of their wages, you know, caring for a loved one based on lost work and knowing how expensive hiring care carers are. We wanted to just make it as easy as possible, as simple as possible. We just didn't want to make another headache, whether it be the cost of it or uh, how simple it is to use. Liz O'Donnell, one of the things that I know that you're very focused on, you've done some research about this, extensive research actually, is something that you call or has been called caregiver gain, something that comes back to caregivers actually as a result of the close work that they do with loved ones, even who are terminal or quite ill. And the fact that Logan's app is really centered, as Chad has said, about on the well-being of the loved ones really sort of supports what you have learned in your research. Yeah, and in researching the book, I came across some other people's research, and it was two professors, one at Johns Hopkins and one at University of Southern Florida, and I've been able to speak with them and interview them. And what they found, and what I really appreciate, is that they don't negate the stress of caregiving, and there's very real stress, you know, insomnia and, you know, inability to care for yourself the way you might need to when, when you're in the middle of a caregiving situation. But they find that, yes, those things can be true. And when you come across the other side of caregiving, they research caregivers compared to non-caregivers and found they have 
better physical strength, better longevity, better cognitive abilities, and a higher sense of self-esteem and self-worth. And they liken that to the fact that at our core as caregivers, we are connecting to people in need, often family members, at their most vulnerable time. And that connection is really, as humans, what we all crave. And I certainly experienced it myself in caring for my parents, and I see it in the caregiving community, or the working daughter community. And so I think, yeah, what Logan has tapped into in making caregiving a little more streamlined and easier and being able to focus on the act of showing up as opposed to being obsessed, you know, perhaps with the logistics, he really um, creates a path for that. So I'm glad you brought up the game. And Liz, I would also have to say that, you know, for people who the act of showing up is huge in these circumstances. So many people, you know, care, love people, but just feel like they can't they can't deal with it. So when it feels more complicated, then that's a reason for them to stay away at a time when actually the loved one could most use it. Yeah, I mean, caregiving is, is you know, wrought with fear, right? I mean, it, we're talking about dying and aging and disease and things we're terrified of. So anything that breaks down those barriers and lets us see that, hey, if I show up, this is pretty amazing. Logan, when you tested this, and you have now have more than 6,000 users and a lot of feedback, what are people continuing to say back to you now or then or in the middle of it as they use Cares Air? Yeah, it's really all about connecting, whether it be them talking about the enhanced ability to connect to family members who might want to stay involved or want to be involved in the caregiving process, but just don't, yeah, you know, as we said so many times so far, you know, because they're scared to do so or involved or more of making the process so much more easy to use or easy to understand. Because especially when it's kind of, at least for us, it was kind of like a tornado when the caregiving experience really hit us, hit our family, it threw things and through us into disarray. So the ability to just have some sense of whether it be understanding or control over the caregiving process, it's important to a lot of people, and that's part of the feedback we received. So I understand that it made your relationship with your grandmother stronger. Yeah. Being able to put aside some of these other details and just focus on her. It really did. It made me appreciate first how much she did for me before she was diagnosed with dementia. You know, I consistently saw her at least once a week. You know, she lived in, um, well, she still lives in our town. Now she's in an assisted living facility, but she always lived in town, which was awesome. But also, Liz said this in a great way, how uh, seeing her in a vulnerable state, you know, I really kind of understood how, first, how well she took care of us. And she was kind of the maternal figure, first for, to my dad, but also, you know, the, as a grandmother to us and kind of to see the role reverse for my family to start taking care of her. It made me appreciate all that she's done for us over the years. Chad, I know you felt the same about your mother and being able to really concentrate on her care because of your very close relationship. Very much so. She was a single mother growing up. We were pretty much the only family we had to a certain degree. Uh, But Liz touched on something. Sometimes you can get so caught up in the logistics of caring for, you just forget to be caring. Mm -hmm. It's not that you mean to. But all you can think about are how to make these wheels turn and keep these plates spinning. And you forget that sometimes that person couldn't care less about it, and you just have to be more present. And this app really does allow for you to do that. In closing, I'd like each of you to just say something to people who will be listening to this, worrying or feeling inadequate or feeling guilty or any all of the above or feeling disconnected about 
your experience having come to the point that you're at, wherever you're at, and what do you think might be helpful to them? I'll start with you, Chad. Well, for those that seem overwhelmed, it's not unnatural. But if you keep staring at that mountain, you'll never be able to look at the path in front of you. And if you do that and just take things as they come, you have the skills to deal with this. You just don't really realize that you have everything you need in front of you and that loving the person that you're with and helping them enjoy everything they can for as long as they can is really the most important part. And hopefully one day this app gets a more institutional type of buy-in where it comes down from social workers and doctors. And really, really, once that buy-in occurs, you'll get a lot more value out of this app. I would say try it. There's a lot of things you're going to fail in this process doing, and there are a lot of things that are going to be huge successes. And this one, right, to me, has a big potential to eliminate a lot of the difficulties that people run into, especially in the beginning, in the first few years of this process. Liz O'Donnell? You mentioned guilt, and I'll touch on that. I think we have so much guilt as caregivers because there's so much more that we can be doing, and I would say that guilt is misplaced. Caregiving should be a team sport, but oftentimes we go it alone. And so I think if caregivers can focus on what they've done as opposed to what they can't get to, it's going to pay off. And Logan? Yeah, both Chad and Liz said it so well as far as the emotions are concerned. Even if things seem so crazy in the moment, or if everything has been all over the place. After the fact, I think I've gotten much closer both to my grandmother, but also everyone involved in the caregiving with my uh, family themselves. At the end, it enhanced my bond with them. Well, I thank you all for joining me, and I'm with you, Liz. I wish I'd had this app when my mother was ill. I know what it could have done for our family and our relationships, and I know what it'll be able to do for many more. So congratulations to you, Logan, for thinking outside of yourself, and I just can't imagine how many people you'll help with it. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Logan Wells is a 20-year-old Lexington, Massachusetts native and creator of the CareZare app. Liz O'Donnell is the founder of Working Daughter and the author of Working Daughter, A Guide to Caring for Your Aging Parents While Earning a Living. And Chad Burns is a retention manager for Benefit Resource Incorporated and longtime CareZare app user. Coming up, Boston's official poetry ambassadors are out to make poetry fans of all of us. April is National Poetry Month, so we're celebrating with two young women who have mastered one of art's oldest forms of expression. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, that's Creole for something extra, Boston's official poetry ambassadors are out to make poetry fans of all of us. These days, it's an easier task for Boston's Poet Laureate and Boston's first ever Youth Poet Laureate because there is a vibrant worldwide movement embracing poetry. April is National Poetry Month, so we're celebrating with these two young women who have mastered one of art's oldest forms of expression. Joining me in the studio, Portia Olaiwola, the City of Boston's current Poet Laureate and author of I Shimmer Sometimes Too. Hello, Portia. Hi there. How's it going? It's going great. Also with me, Alondra Bobadilla, the City of Boston's first ever Youth Poet Laureate and a junior at Fenway High School. Hello, Alondra. Hi. Well, this is great because I love poetry, and it turns out 
I guess everybody else in the world loves it, too. <laughs> this poetry continues to have a moment. I thought I'd start this way. Here's a few ways that other poets have described poetry. Former U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera says poetry is verbal art. And Kwame Alexander, who's a poet and author of the book The Undefeated, he's also NPR's Morning Edition contributor on poetry, he says the goal is to make words dance on the page. So my first question to each of you, what? how do you describe poetry, just poetry overall? Then we'll come back to something else. So start with you, Portia. Sure thing. I'm going to try to not go on forever because I could possibly. Um, but I imagine it as literally, in its most basic form, an expression of thoughts and feelings. And I think it uses, obviously, uses language. But I think language is our basic form of communication. And in, even still, things can be so uh, much more like mistranslated, even if we are speaking the same language. And it becomes very difficult to express thoughts and feelings and without that getting lost across what language means. So I think of poetry as getting as close as possible to expressing our most intimate truths. All right, Alondra, how do you describe poetry? I'm definitely in agreement with Portia. Uh, she kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, but I would say that uh, I don't know if it was the former poet laureate mm -hmm. off of the quotes that you read um, that the words like dancing on the page. Mm -hmm. That's Kwame as, Alexander. There mm -hmm. we go. Mm -hmm. As a dancer myself, I think that that's probably one of the most perfect descriptions. And as a, a lover of music as well, I feel like poetry is an outlet. It's a way for not only for us to express ourselves, but for people to sort of see a reflection of themselves within the same words. All right, so Alondra Bobadilla, Boston's first ever youth poet laureate, how do you describe your poetry? Oh, goodness. <laughs> very, very honest, very honest and very fluid. I sort of write whatever comes to mind. I don't overthink it too much. Uh, kind of opposite of my character because I overthink a lot. But when I write, I think that's the most authentic version of myself. Okay. And Portia, how do you describe your poetry? I think that's hard. I think um, I'll say and right now the process feels much like an interrogation or a discovery. And uh, I don't know, I'm very interested in getting as close to the bone as possible, as close to the truth. Right now that looks like retelling stories around history. So that is what my poems are doing or looks like. <laughs> okay, know. very good. So a little bit of now about how both of you came to have your positions. Uh, Portia, you've had yours for about a year, and in fact, you were instrumental in creating the position that Alondra now holds. What's it been like for the year, and were you surprised when they approached you about being the Poet Laureate and, and excited about it? Yeah, it's it's been a great year. It's been a very pushing year. Lots of work, lots of moving around. I was surprised, mostly because they said, come in for one last interview with the mayor. And when I got there, it wasn't an interview at all. It was a congratulations oh. story, which was nice and exciting. And I don't know if that increased the stress or decreased it, honestly. <laughs> But it's it's been great. It's been wonderful, mostly because I'm not from Boston, and mm. I feel like the city has opened up to me in ways that I just couldn't imagine. Everybody has been so generous, so kind, and I don't know. This is my home. This is my home. Boston is in my name, and so that's how I've been rolling into the role, um, but also have been having been received by residents as well. That's my guest, Portia Olaiwola. She's the city of Boston's current poet laureate and author of I Shimmer, Sometimes Too. Now, Alondra, you worked with Portia to help create this first 
ever Boston Youth Poet Laureate. I understand it wasn't even on your agenda. You weren't even thinking about it. You're just doing your thing writing, and they <laughs> they approached you, various people. Tell us about it. <laughs> they announced it. I don't know exactly what month they announced it, but I remember that they were, you know, on the on the look for this new position for people who would like to apply for the new position. I remember that a couple of um, school administrators and then one of my best friends approached me, sent it to me, and she's like, this is something that you should do. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about that because— my poetry was for me, it was for myself. But I went out on a limb, I applied, and then from there, I kind of just, the wind just sort of took me. <laughs> then there was the interviews, and then there was the final showcase. And I was just in complete shock, because again, my poetry was for me. I wasn't a part of any prior programs. I wasn't uh, a part of anything, really. I just kind of shared it with my school, and, and I left it at that. I never thought that I would be here, I guess. Well, there were 10 semifinalists they chose you from, from so that was that's pretty impressive. You've had your job now since January, just a couple of months. How do you see your role as kind of poetry's ambassador, to young people especially? It's something that I'm honored to have, and I also see it as very vital. I've met a lot of people in my community, a lot of young people in my community, and I know how much Bostonian youth love to express themselves. <laughs> and they find various ways to do that, whether that is through poetry itself, whether that is through music or through any other form. And I feel like having this position is both honoring and a little bit intense, but I love the fact that I get to represent my community in such a unique way and that I get to use this to... Uh, not only sort of, I guess, encourage young people and other people as a whole to continue to express themselves, but to show them that that platform, that type of platform matters and that they should also continue to express themselves on a bigger, uh, I guess, a bigger arena, if mm. so to speak, mm -hmm. um, and continue to express themselves more with, with their community and with other members of their community. Okay. So let's hear a little bit of uh, your work, Alondra. As a young girl, I got lost in the words on a page. Books were my vacation. I'd walk far and wide, a book in hand, as locked on the page as I let the stories of others take me away to a better place. As a young teen, I put the books down and picked up a pen, and the words of my childhood spilled out on the paper, not with eloquence or with ease, but with a hidden rage. A once quiet hum became like the sounds of a stampede when I let my pen say what my mouth couldn't speak. I was no longer the reader. I had become the writer, the one to take the lost and lonely to places that they never thought that they could reach, to words that they never thought that they could speak. I once got lost in fables, now I get lost in truths. My mind is a body of water that was blocked by a dam a long time ago, but the dam was cracked and destroyed the moment I traded lie for truth, silence for voice. And now the words flow with no remorse, never again to be put on hold. And I try to grasp and collect all of the stories untold so I can once more reclaim them as mine. Because if anyone else told them, they simply wouldn't tell them right. All right. That's Alondra Bobadilla, the city of Boston's first ever youth poet laureate. I believe you're dropping the mic on that one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right, Miss Portia. Portia is the City of Boston's current Poet Laureate. That's Portia Olaiwola, the City of Boston's current Poet Laureate. I'd like to hear from you. Um, sure thing. This is a 
poem. This is an old poem, but it always feels like, especially now with things being shut down and rescheduled, feels like a good time to call on community. Um, but it's called Boston Ode, and it goes on forever. Can you name a love without rigor, without sweet ache and stretch and sunshine and sweat, Boston, parent of our hollowed America? Someone else's God before the land was conquered, not the city we are born of, but it is a charitable home. The same way the city upon a hill gave birth to a country and we are all now inside a nation and unbelonging at once. There is not a love I can fathom with neither push nor pull, with neither grit nor sorrow nor glory reigning out the other end. What is a home then? if unhinged and locked. Beloved city, gym with bodegas on its corners, each studded with a cat guarding the front stoop, gracious current, ringing the rush of the river, the calm of the palm, the guilt of the ocean, hushing secrets along Dorchester shores, Beantown, the best to keep the cat. Slades on Tremont and Bentus and Rosendale. Home is the booth we plop into. The cafes where the cashier craft meals that fill us. Dear city, southwest corridor thumbing from the subway, racing against air. Patron saint of travelers, plague of trolleys. Hold us still at lights. Unlearn us bustle and hand us patience. Memorandum to slow. Remind us who it is we are and the blood love it took to raise us, city of building blocks, place of clear water, of culture shaping, of planting and planning, tri-hilled city. Tip the cup of tea and bring on the massacre, city of building up, 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 and people out, 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 city of ramming, city of rumming, of shifting, pacing, fast, gone, champion of all, parade for everything, celebrate the house, the keeper of our bones, nest to our families, who will want if we won't, and what is a heart if it does not pulse, does not pull itself toward itself and extract itself away again? What is a heart if it doesn't pause? Then continue, as to remind the body it has chosen to keep going, the gallant and the trodden, the gentrified and the migrant, from Roxbury to the seaport harbor, Castle Island, cobblestone tomb of chess, cobblestone town, always shouting our melancholy big on your pavements, always chasing friends away and further into your arms, sirened city, sunbathe, silly picnic, public garden concerts, you beautiful summer, you fight your work and worth it all. You cold heat to my head, investor in wealth and health, eldest master, first future of our states, teacher of love, long standing, of might, fight, and force, politics, and wind blow a barbed breeze, cutting kisses across the face. Oh, city I love, oh, city I know, and walk the lawn of, city I carry between my cheeks, around my neck, city I found along my palms, under my nails, city of song blaring, of loud, leaping rhythm, familiar and inescapable, calling out to each of us by heart, singing out to all of us by name. Whoa. Well, that was Portia Olaiwola taking the mic out of the room. <laughs> that was excellent. Wow. Thank you. 
I wonder if you two, because both of you have it, so it's great, believe that the the reading of the poetry, the performance of the poetry has been part of the reason that so many people now are attracted to the form, and particularly younger people. Alondra. Oh, goodness. I feel that that has a lot to do with it. I think there's something about reading um, a poem on paper that as much as that it's interesting, I think some of the first poetry I started reading was Shakespeare, and I hated it because I couldn't understand it. So there's something about having people speak in front of you, and it, it reminds me, again, I always bring it back to music, it reminds me of someone's like freestyling in front of you. It's like a concert, but without a beat behind it even though some people also read their poems with beats behind it. But regardless, um, there's something about it that sort of captures and commands the room and everyone sort of finds themselves somewhere in the words. It's kind of like, I think of it as like a family reunion. Everybody's like eating all together at the table. There's something for everybody to pick at. And I think that that's why it's now become so attractive. All right, I'm going to play a cut from Amanda Gorman. She was the first ever National Youth Poet Laureate. Um, she was reading her poem last year, Believer's Hymn for the Republic. It was set to music performed by the Boston Pops, and she performed it at the July concert, and I was there watching her do that. So here's Amanda Gorman. Today, we gather so that our founders' words do not go diminished, but also so that the work does not go unfinished. For it's not just in a declaration of independence, but the everyday declaration of its descendants that make a people equal. It is our right and our role to remember these words scratched on a scroll so we may live them and heal our nation whole. So I played that because we're in this continuum of, you know, the presentation of the material seems to be so, so important. Portia? Uh, you have the skill, the talent to have that storytelling vibe as you're doing your poetry. Did you Tell me why you think or if you think that that has been important in drawing other people to poetry in this moment. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot, especially as a person who is traditionally based in slam poetry or performance poetry um, and who is also, you know, an author of a book or et cetera and so forth. And by the way, pause. You've won a national and world championship for slam poetry. Continue. That's true. <laughs> OK. You know, but I think that, in fact, like most poetry is meant to be read out loud. Even if you're reading a book, I would suggest reading the poem out loud, even if, even if that is to yourself. And I think people like Shakespeare, I think people forget that most of the folks alive during his time were illiterate. And so the, all of his work was meant to be read aloud. Most of it wasn't actually even written down until afterwards, until people were like, oh, maybe we should write this down. Most of it, the plays were meant to be performed one time. And if you were there, you were there. And if you weren't, you were not. You know, you missed it. And people improv and they, they fed off the room. You know what I mean? And I think people forget that. Or, like, they force us into these classrooms and pretend that poetry is so academic, you know, when really, really it's for the people. It's for the people in the room, in the space. Um, and, and, and if you are just so happen to have it in your hand reading a book, then I hope that you will read it out loud and hear what the, the writer has intended for it to sound like. Okay. You are both young women of color. How does that shape your work, if it does? Or how has it shaped your work? Or has, how does it continue to shape your work? Alondra. 
So a lot of uh, what I like to write about is definitely community-based and talking a lot about my family and stuff like that. And being American-born but Dominican and Puerto Rican, being first generation, to add on to that, it's a very unique experience being here, being from here, yet always being asked, where are you from? It's also a very unique experience having people pronounce my last name. It's even more unique having them ask me to speak in English and not Spanish in public. It, there's so much that goes into it that shapes it that there's just constantly so much material that I can write about. Because I write so much about a lot of different things, but I definitely weave a lot of those experiences into uh, what I write and to what I decide to read. It's incredibly important, and being the first youth poet laureate, and on top of that, being a young woman of color, being Latina, it says a lot. I'm representing my community and everyone at home and everybody also at home in countries of origin <laughs> are incredibly excited about that because they feel like, they, they feel represented, and I feel like I get to do my part in representing them as well. Okay. Portia. You know, I think about infopolitics, and the I just can't undo my identity from anything that I do because I live on American soil, you know. So it's embedded in the work. It's embedded in how I, I am perceived by other people. I think— Overall, what my identities, these, you know, black woman, queer, fat, et cetera, have allowed me to kind of put a framework on the world around love, just approach it, and specifically in this position, right, because I'm supposed to represent quite a few folks, you know what I mean, or the whole city, if you will, and how do I do that with an identity that is marginalized or multiple identities that is marginalized, and I think Ultimately, what I've learned from all of these things, these two positions, if you will, is love. It's loving people through the work, loving people outside of the work, loving the people who identify in the communities I belong to, loving out, loving outside of that, you know, and writing, reflecting that love for those people and those people who are not those people in the work so that people who are not those people can see that love reflected in the work. You know? okay. So I, I hope you guys follow me. I don't know I if folks it. at home yes. follow. But Just like gonna... ode to, I took your ode to Boston. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I can't write poetry. I'm, 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 I, but I can get a few other things over there, Portia. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are pioneering poets Portia Olai Iwola, Boston's Poet Laureate, and Alondra Bobadilla, Boston's Youth Poet Laureate. We're discussing how poetry can elevate the experiences of overlooked narratives. Now, I say poetry is really having a moment and really popular, and I know some people are listening going, no, it's not. Let me just tell y'all how exciting it is. First of all, there are a group of poets on Instagram known as Instapoets, I mean, and they're very popular. Nikita Gill, Amanda Lovelace, Warsan Shire. Now, I bet people listening to me heard her poetry for the first time in Beyonce's Lemonade. This is how widespread the love of poetry is going and in many other cultural um, scenarios. This is former United States Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith. She's reading a poem, Premonition, by Andrea Hollander, and it's on her podcast called The Slowdown. I'm Tracy K. Smith, and this is The Slowdown, Premonition, by Andrea Hollander. Dusk, and the trees barely visible on either side of the two-lane, west through the Rockies and our second-hand rambler that growled through the landscape like some hulking animal. Our first trip together, my husband's attention more on me than on the darkening road, our newness a kingdom 
of only two. Well, that was Tracy K. Smith, former United States Poet Laureate. You all just really have the craft of, of taking those words and, and making them just really come to life in different ways. It's just so powerful when you hear it in a poem. There are so many poetry podcasts, I, I can't even count them, but there were enough so that one guy wrote a column saying, top 30 poetry podcasts you must follow in 2020. That's, again, how our popular poetry is. There are places online where people just go for two or three minutes of reading uh, the poem of the day. So people are all in and I'm told by experts that particularly at a time of volatility, of concern, and now we have another concern, a public health concern going on, that people turn to poetry, that this is something that happens. You all are out and about being ambassadors in your roles. Are you seeing that? Are people are looking for a way, not, not to escape, but to enter into a different space? Alondra. The word that comes to mind would be solidarity. It's funny when you said escape, the word escape came to my mind too, but I think it's more that everyone sort of finds some type of comfort, like a united comfort in in the arts as a whole and specifically in words, specifically in poetry and telling stories. And that's just like age old tradition right there. I know now even when maybe the lights go out and we can't do anything else, we'll just sit there and we'll start telling stories. And I think that that's such a natural human response to moments of difficulty that we find uh, comfort in the words and in the experiences that already live inside of us. And that's why even, you know, with poetry, though, we write it down and we memorize our poems. I feel like those poems just live inside of you. And I think that even though there are some people that we call poets, I think everyone within themselves has that ability to express themselves that way. And that's why I feel that during times like this, people turn to words for comfort, for some type of understanding, because I think it's the only thing that we all have in common, even if it's in so many different languages, but mm. we all have words, communication, expression in common. Portia? Yeah, I totally think Alondra's right. You know, I'm thinking when she said it was more about solidarity than escapism. I think of, like, fiction more about escaping or being able to jump into another world. But I think poetry is really about solidarity and that you take a, a moment, an instant. You only get so few lines, you know what I mean, um, to really capture how you're feeling in that moment. And hopefully other people see how, see themselves as well. I, think, I mean, I definitely spent today and yesterday writing poems about, you know, what's happening right now, this public health situation and what that means for families and what that means for folks who are already marginalized and all of those things. So I think it is about solidarity. It, I write because I need to capture what's happening in my body, but also then I need to share it because I hope somebody else can see themselves capture and vice versa. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, favorite poets. <laughs> favorite. Oh, Come on, Alondra. <laughs> you can do more than one, but if you have a specific one, that's great. There's a specific person. Did I just, I remember her name. Okay, Elizabeth. Acevedo. There we go. Oh. Acevedo, exacto. I love her poetry. The Poetex was the first one that I was introduced to, and I just, like, oh my goodness. I could relate so much to the book and to the stories and just the fact that she's Dominican, and yeah. then I've never heard of no one else except for, you know, traditional writers from DR. But, like, present day, I was so unaware that there was, like, a Dominican writer with so much presence. So I was like, ah, yay. Like, I get to read stuff about, like, you know? So I like her. Okay. Portia. 
I always say the people closest to me, like Alondra's my favorite poet. Mm-hmm. Um, You're copping out. No, no, no. I'm, I'm totally not copping out. It's, it's, that, it's like I learned so much both about the craft from people next to me. Okay. Like, how do I tell the truth like Alondra just did without all the fluff? You know, mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking when I hear you read. But mm-hmm. also, like, I think people sometimes people think they have to go to poets.org or the Academy of American mm-hmm. Poets or the MFA program to learn poetry. But really, there are people down the street on the corner saying poems that I think are just as valid and valuable. So it's always hard for me to name somebody that people know versus people that they should know, you know? Okay. For me, Lucille Clifton, always, always. I love (laughs) Lucille Clifton. All right, one last thing, because you are both ambassadors, your job is to bring more people into the tent. Um, What would you tell somebody who's a little bit shy about poetry uh, to get them to do one thing during Poetry Month? Hmm, Just do it. I've been working on, especially for the past, like, two months of my life, I'm, like I said earlier, a really big overthinker, and I'm learning how to just sort of look at something, and if I want to do it, just to do it, you know? And I think that anybody can participate in stuff like this, and they just sort of back out because they're like, is it going to sound good enough? And no, I don't think it's about that. I think it's just expressing yourself however it comes out, and as you go, you start to find your your voice or your writing style. So I would just say just go for it, and don't even overthink it. Just write it. All right. Well, that's for, that's <laughs> advice for people who are trying to write poetry. How about people who are just trying to read it and just get a, get a little bit more comfortable with it, Portia? Yeah, I would say for starters, read a poem. Read a poem a day, even for National Poetry Month. Mm. I think that's incredible. Um, also, not to do a shameless pub, but I'm <laughs> working with the city and the Boston Public Library to offer free writing workshops ah. um, during the month of April for National Poetry Month. And, you know, hopefully things are still scheduled and won't get canceled. But I'm hoping we can gather some residents in. So, all right. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Portia Olai Iwola is the City of Boston's current poet laureate and author of I Shimmer Sometimes Too. Alondra Bobadilla is the City of Boston's first ever youth poet laureate and a junior at Fenway High School. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.